turn our attention to uh, a passage we've looked at before, but maybe not exactly from this same perspective. If you're here two weeks ago, actually three weeks ago, you know we're in the um, Advent season. We looked at various passages that relate to the incarnation. And we talked a couple of weeks ago about Jesus in the home of Zacchaeus and how he made uh, for uh, Zacchaeus a sanctuary, a refuge. And here in Luke 15 is arguably the greatest story Jesus ever told. It is a uh, powerful testimony to what we want to talk about, and certainly that involves the incarnation. So beginning in verse 1, chapter 15, we'll read two verses and then go down to, chapter 11, or to uh, verse 11. Now the tax collectors and sinners were all drawing near to hear Jesus. And the Pharisees and the scribes grumbled, saying, This man receives sinners and eats with them. Verse 11. Jesus said there was a man who had two sons. The younger of the sons said to the father, Father, give me the share of the property that is coming to me. And so the father divided his property between his two sons. Not many days later, the younger son gathered all that he had and took a journey into a far country. And there he squandered his property in reckless living. And when he had spent everything, a severe famine arose in that country, and he began to be in need. So he went and hired himself out to one of the citizens of that country who sent him into the fields to feed pigs. He was longing to be fed by the pods that the pigs ate. No one gave him anything. But when he came to himself, he said, How many of my father's hired servants have more than enough bread? But I perish here with hunger. I will arise and go to my father, and I will say to him, Father, I've sinned against heaven and before you. I'm no longer worthy to be called your son. Treat me as one of your hired servants. And so he arose and came to his father. But while he was still a long way off, his father saw him and felt compassion and ran and embraced him and kissed him. And the son said to him, Father, I've sinned against heaven and before you. I'm no longer worthy to be called your son. But the father said to his servants, bring quickly the best robe and put it on him. Put the ring on his hand and shoes on his feet and bring the fatted calf and kill it and let us eat and celebrate. For this my son was dead and is alive again. He was lost and is found. They began to celebrate. Now his older son was in the field. And when he came and drew near to the house, he heard music and dancing. He called one of the servants and asked what all these things meant. And the servant said to him, your brother has come. Your father has killed the fatted calf because he's received him back safe and sound. And he was angry and refused to go in. When his father came out and entreated him, he answered his father, Look, these many years I've served you. I never disobeyed your command, yet you never gave me a young goat that I might celebrate with my friends. But when this son of yours came, who has devoured your property with prostitutes, you killed the fatted calf for him. And his father said to him, Son, you were always with me. And all that is mine is yours. It was fitting to celebrate and be glad. For this your brother was dead 
and is alive. He was lost and is found. The year was 1996, 25 years ago. I sat across the table from a man and I said, tell me about you. And for the next 20 minutes, he told me his story of guilt and shame and sadness. He told me his wife left him. He told me his church left him. He told me his family turned his back on them. He said, I was all alone in a distant city and I knew I needed to return to Pittsburgh. After decades of ministry, I knew that life as I knew it was over. I had lost everything. I would lost my family. I had lost my wife. I had lost my ministry. I would lost my livelihood. I would lost everything but my kids. And after 20 minutes of trauma and tears, he looked at me and said, well? I said, well, what? <laughs> he said, well, what do you think? I said, I think you need to preach at Hebron. He was stunned. He looked at me as though I was an idiot. Now, I know that look. He said, you haven't heard a word I've said. I'm not worthy to preach. I said, what made you think that you were ever worthy to preach? Listen to me, I've heard everything you've said. And that's why I want you back in the pulpit, because I think you can speak about grace in a way most people can't. It took him five months to say yes. Five is the number of grace. And when the day came, he preached from this very text. And at the end of his sermon up in the sanctuary, he grabbed his wallet, pulled out a $5 bill, and put it right on the side of the pulpit. He said, I don't know where you are today, but I know what it's like to have no money. A few months ago, I was on the turnpike. I was ready to get off at the toll booth. This was well before Easy Pass. He said, I knew I didn't have any money in my wallet, so I began to dig into the seat cushions. And I found 90 cents, which was a blessing because I needed 85. And when I gave that lady the 85 cents, I drove around the corner so she couldn't see me. I pulled off on the sh shoulder of the road. I slumped over the steering wheel and I bawled like a baby. I said, what's become of me? I've got nothing but a nickel to my name. So if you're here this morning and you're in that circumstance and you need this money, you don't have to tell me. You just come and get it. But I'll tell you what, if you need more, you can come and let me know and I'll, I'll get it for you. After that, he walked down the center aisle of the church. I walked down there with him and he collapsed into my arms after he'd gotten out that last door. 
and he sobbed like a baby. After 20 minutes of people coming and hugging him and crying with him and saying they loved him, I said, hey, Tim, why don't we go back and see if somebody took your money? And when we got to the pulpit, somebody had put a 20 on top of the five. And that's when I knew that grace was breaking out at Hebron. Somebody said, grace is the unmerited favor of God, but I disagree. It is favor granted in the face of absolute demerit. And nothing proves that any more clearly than the incarnation. Listen to what John says. For the word became flesh and dwelt among us full of grace and truth. For the law was given through Moses, grace and truth came through Jesus Christ. What is that truth? What is the truth? Jesus tells us in Zacchaeus' home, I have come to seek and to save the lost. How does he do it? He does it by grace and grace alone. Someone has said, if you want to grow in your faith, you must grow in your knowledge and appreciation of grace. The tendency is to say grace begins our journey. That's a lie. Grace continues our journey. We must grow deeper into our knowledge and appreciation of grace. And so this morning on this last Sunday that I'm with you, given the privilege to preach, not because I deserve it, I can't think of a better time to go deeper into grace. So let's dig in. Guess how many points I have? Five. <laughs> First, notice the foundation of grace. It's the text Jerry read, Exodus chapter 20, verse 25. Then the Lord said to Moses, if you make me an altar of stone, you shall not build it of hewn stone. For if you wield your tool on it, you will profane it. Now I'm old. And I've been in church all my life. And I can honestly say, even though my mental acuity is slipping, I can never remember ever hearing anyone read the last verses of Exodus 20 and preach on it or teach on it in all my years. Do you know what happened in the first part of 20? The Lord gives Moses the Ten Commandments. Now, I've heard a lot about those, but nothing about the sequel. The Lord is speaking to Moses right after he gives the Ten Commandments. And he gives him a way of dealing with his failure to keep them. And he's not just talking to Moses. He's talking to the whole people of Israel, all of his people. Think of this. God gives the Ten Commandments. And then in the next breath, he says, okay, when you break them, here's how I want you to deal with it. 
A few weeks ago, a very close friend and I went to a memorial service over on the other side of the city. It was packed. Because everybody knew the friend that we knew. The service went nearly two hours, and from the very beginning, people began to say the same thing. They had three ministers speak, and yet it wasn't boring. And they all said the same thing. They talked about our friend, all the ministry had done, all the people who had come to Christ, and there were a lot. He talked about how he was a model parent and and a model spouse and they talked about his cancer and how he was a hero in the midst of it and near the end of the service in this large space they put up on all the screens the words you often hear at a memorial service well done good and faithful servant so we're walking out and I said to my friend what did you think of that service Instantly, he said, well, I've been divorced, and my ex-wife hates me. I'm not sure I can ever measure up. And I said to him, relax. There's only one person who's ever heard those words, and it's not you, and it's not our friend, and it's not going to be me. It's Jesus. There is only one, there's only one who hears the words, well done, good and faithful servant, and that's Jesus Christ. There are people today who decry the loss of prayer in public school. They're the same people who decry the desecration and the removal of the Ten Commandments from the the public square. But you know what's most distressing to me? The fact that the last verses of chapter 20 of Exodus are never read. I mean, look what the Lord says. When you break my law... And you're guilty. Make an altar of dirt. And if you make it by stone, don't you dare hewn those stones. Don't put a tool on it. Don't add anything to it. And don't put steps up because if you put steps up and you use them, I'll see your nakedness. You know what he's saying? Don't you dare think that you add a single thing to my forgiveness and grace because it doesn't depend on you. It depends on me completely. And the incarnation proves it. Second, notice not only the foundation of grace, notice the folly of grace. Verses 1 and 2 of Luke 15. Now the tax collectors and sinners were all drawing near to him to hear him. And the Pharisees and the scribes grumbled, say, this man receives sinners and eats with them. Years ago, I knew of a woman who had lost her husband and her only child, a, a boy, in World War II. She cried herself to sleep for more than a year. You know what made matters worse? The woman across the street had five sons that went into World War II and they all came back home safely. She said, one night I was having a fitful night. I began to have a dream and in that dream an angel came to the foot of my bed and he said to me, I am going to give your son back to you for 10 minutes. What 10 minutes do you want? 
Do you want 10 minutes with him as a baby in arms? Do you want 10 minutes when he was a little toddler, dirty-faced and laughing? Do you want him as a, the valedictorian of his high school class? Do you want him as a, a brave young soldier going off to war? How do you want him? And the woman said to the angel, I don't want any of those times. I want him back as a young man who balled up his fist in a fit of rage and cursed me and said, I hate you, I hate you, I never want to see you again. The angel was perplexed. The angel said, what do you mean? The woman said, well, after his anger subsided, he came back and said, Mama, I'm wrong. Would you please forgive me? Let me have him back for those moments. Because never in his life did I love him any more than when he quit running and came home. But that's exactly the opposite of what we have in this story. Jesus does way more than that. He looks for him every day. He runs to the sinners. He seeks them out. He goes into their house and has dinner with them. He eats with them. And them is us. I mean, think of this. The first sin in the Bible was a sin of eating. Remember? You can eat of any tree in the garden but that one. Don't eat of that one, for in the day that you eat of it, you shall surely die. But that's not the end of the story. God became a man so that he might eat with us. In fact, God became a man so that he might be the meal do you ever think of this? The Bible begins with eating, men and women eating alone, and it ends with men and women, you and me, eating with the Lord forever in glory. You know why? Because from the first chapter to the last chapter, all is grace. Third, notice not only the foundation and the folly of grace, notice the focus of grace. Look at verse 20. He arose and came to his father, but while he was a still a long way off, his father saw him and felt compassion and ran and embraced him and kissed him. For years I was taught a lie about this chapter. I was taught that verse 17 meant what it doesn't mean. I was taught that he came to himself. He repented. Because he was in the pig pen and he was starving to death and he knew that his servants, the servants of his father could eat, he would say to his father, I've sinned again. He repented. If this guy repents, Jesus is a schizophrenic. This is the third story of three. The, they're linked together. The first is a shepherd who has 100 sheep. One goes astray. What's he do? He leaves the 99, goes and finds the lost. Second story, a woman loses one of the coins of 10 in her necklace, indicating that she's been unfaithful to her husband. What's she do? She looks feverishly all through the matted floor looking for this coin. 
know if this boy can make his way back home on his own. Then he's not like the sheep and he's not like the coin. When Jesus said he came to himself, it means he redoubles his efforts. He says, I know what I'll do. I'll go home and I'll, I'll cop a plea. I'll say to my father, I've sinned against heaven and against you. You know what? Those words are not unique with him. You find them in the book of Exodus after the ninth plague on Egypt. That's exactly what Pharaoh says to Moses. I've sinned against heaven. He's not repentant. He's resourceful. He thinks he can do it on his own, but he can't. And his father knows he can't. His father knows if he reaches the village without his father reaching him first, his life is over. You see, his crime is that he lost his inheritance to Gentiles. That's a capital offense, not just against his father, but against the community. They have a responsibility to execute judgment. If the father doesn't rescue him before he gets home and they get him, he'll be destroyed. So what does that father do? He does what no Jewish father of Jesus' day would ever do. He stands on his porch day and night. He looks for him. And he sees him afar off. He, his bowels are broken. His guts are wrenched. He feels compassion for him. And he runs to him. And he kisses him. He embraces him. In other words, what Jesus is saying is this father abases himself. He makes himself like a servant. Does that sound familiar to you? That's the incarnation. God became a man doing exactly the same thing to run to you, to embrace you, to kiss you, and to save you from destruction. Why? Because that's always the focus of grace. Fourth, notice the fear of grace. Look at verses 29 to 30. But the older son answered his father, look, these many years I've served you. I never disobeyed your commands, yet you never gave me a young goat that I might celebrate with my friends. But when this son of yours came, who's devoured your property with prostitutes, you killed the fatted calf for him. Now, for decades, I thought this guy was simply full of bovine scatology. I mean, everything he says is a lie. And yet, in recent days, I've come to see it differently. He's not just full of it. He's full of fear. I mean, look what he says to his fathers. These many years I've served you. You know what the Greek is? Kanabi could tell you. It means that I have become a slave. He uses the lowest word, the lowest form of manual labor. It's, it's the labor that a chain gang would engage in. That's what he's saying to his father. Now get this, he's a wealthy kid. He's already received two-thirds of his father's estate. He has absolutely nothing in common with a slave or a prisoner, and yet in the face of grace, that's how he sees himself. Look what else he says. I've never disobeyed your command. I love what someone has said. Pride is the only disease that makes everyone else sick, but the one who has it. 
Imagine saying to his father, I've never, never, ever disobeyed your command. You see, fear of grace corrupts his view of himself, but it does more than that. It corrupts his view of his father. He says, you never even gave me a young goat to celebrate with my friends. Did you know that in antiquity, nobody ate a young goat unless they were desperately starving and poor? A young goat was not like veal. A young goat was tough and terrible to eat. And what he's saying to his father in the face of grace is, you've given me nothing, and yet the father's already given him everything. He depreciates everyone and everything because of his fear of grace. Douglas Kelly was a professor of theology at Reform Seminary for years. I mean, this is a guy who has an Oxford and a Cambridge degree. This is a man who's written more than 25 books, and listen to what he says. If you want to make people mad, preach the law. But if you really want to make them mad, preach grace. You know why? Because churches around the world are filled with older brothers. People who've taken grace for granted and fear those who don't. And the longer I live, and the more I'm in ministry, the more I know that's true. And then fifth and finally, notice the fact of grace. Look at verse 32. It was fitting to celebrate and be glad, for this your brother was dead and is alive. He was lost and is found. You know, there's one guy here today I never thought was coming. I didn't even think of it. He's my brother. Stand up, Bob. There he is, much better looking, much smarter. <laughs> Came all the way from Tennessee. You know, 40 years ago at Princeton, they had a department of speech. Now, you wouldn't know that knowing me. <laughs> and because we were fairly close to New York City, they had professors, and, and we had a professor who came from Broadway, and I'll never forget what she said the first day. She said, you know, when I took this job at Princeton, I knew that I'd never have to work with a bad script again. <laughs> Isn't that a great definition of the Bible, a good script? <laughs> And she said to us, you know, reading the Bible publicly is something that requires a lot of work. And there are most people that don't put the work in and they butcher it. And we will have no butchery here. I'll never forget the day the guy stood up and he read this text. And when he got to verse 32, he read it something like this. It was fitting to celebrate and be glad for this your brother was dead and is alive. He was lost and is found. And she said, what did you say? He mumbled and she said, what did you say? Read it again. And so he did. It was fitting to celebrate and be glad for this your brother was dead and is alive. He was lost and is found. She said, what did you say? I mean, this woman was intense. The guy's shaking. Read it again. 
And he did the same way and finally said, shut up and sit down. This is the way you must read it. It was fitting to celebrate and be glad. For this, your brother was dead and is alive. He's not just my son, he's your brother. He is you. You know, it's said at the foot of the cross, it's level ground. You know what that means? Everybody is on the same footing. 350 years ago, Matthew Henry, the great Welsh commentator, said, Methinks the grace of God shines more brightly in the father's tenderness to his older son. You know why? Because everything that the older brother wants is predicated on a lie that he needs no grace. That's what the Pharisees thought. That's what religionists think. That's what the world thinks. You know, for years I was taught that this was story, it could be called the story of the prodigal son. And that's because they defined prodigal improperly. They said it meant to be wayward and corrupt. It's not what it means. It means to be exceedingly rash and recklessly extravagant. And there's only one person in this story who is exceedingly rash and recklessly extravagant, and that's the father. His love is reckless. His grace is incomparable. And that's why there are those who say, if you want to grow in your faith, you must never move on from grace. You must go deeper into it. Because the danger in the church today are not wayward sons and daughters. The biggest danger in the church today are the staid, arrogant, blind ones who build altars to themselves and live in opposition to the reckless grace of God that came to earth to seek and to save the lost. And guess what? We're always needing his seeking because we're always, always needing to be saved and rescued from our lost condition. That's why 25 years ago on that Sunday morning, when I saw that 20 bucks on top of the five, I knew something was changing. Grace was breaking out here. I pray it never stops.